Let's jump into it with uh, Scott and John. Both are with us on the uh, Center Point Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Gentlemen, always a uh, pleasure. John, I want to start with you because a great honor for Jill Burkham with uh, the Pulitzer announcements. Uh, if the audience is unfamiliar, tell them what took place with Jill and also then uh, Scott can jump in in the role he's played before with these uh, prestigious prizes. Well, Jill Burkham, as many of our listeners know, and indeed she has been on Playing Politics before, is a tremendous editorial writer after a distinguished career in the newsroom. And over the last few years, she has been a finalist, which is in effect, you know, almost tantamount to winning a Pulitzer Prize. This time it was for an editorial she wrote on behalf of the board about the BWCA and mining issue a few years back. It was about Native American schools within Minnesota. And yet many may know her most for her healthcare expertise. She worked at Mayo for a bit in between journalism stints in Rochester as well as the Star Tribune. And she is our lead writer on most of our healthcare editorials, which of course have always been prominent, but particularly in the pandemic era. So she has been doing a remarkable job on that and updating people through those editorials and through social media. So she is a tremendously talented and yet very humble journalist, rightly honored for this piece and um, a real asset to the paper and to the community. All right, Scott, tell people um, how you play a part uh, on on the juries. Is that right? Or, or explain just kind of the details of this, because I think most people are probably familiar with this and how what an amazing honor it is, but just how um, you separate fantastic journalists from others and these different pieces and and i know you've played a role in that uh i have in the past chad that's that's right i've been a uh, pulitzer uh juror four times previously i was not this year uh but uh typically uh past winners editors reporters uh editorial writers photographers from around the country are selected to be part of juries that judge the entries uh, once a year, typically uh, going to New York City uh, for a week and spending time at Columbia, which administers the awards. Uh, it's a great, it's a great honor uh, and a lot of work and a lot of fun to do. I I understand that this year, because of the way things fell with dates, I, th- I believe they had to finish up some of their decision making virtually. Not surprisingly, mm-hmm. um, but uh, what happens is the juries come up typically with three finalists in each category, and then they forward those to the Pulitzer board, which makes the final decision on a winner. So Jill was a finalist, one of three in the editorial writing category this time uh, for the BWCA edit, as John said. And what that edit basically argued was that the regulatory process with regard to the Twin Metals mine proposed for the edge of the BWCA is broken at the federal level. Uh, the Trump administration, when it took over uh, uh, the review process of that project, made it very clear that it, it was going to take any roadblocks out of the way, including just basic environmental review. We still have some hopes that the state will uh, uh, be able to do uh, more with its powers uh, in reviewing the mine. Still many years off from being built, but the approval process continues and uh, 
it was great work, and we're, we're proud of it. Obviously, the topic is still out there. So uh, uh, congratulations to Jill on this uh, remarkable honor. Scott, let's get to the state first, and then we'll go to the federal level. The uh, word coming out yesterday and then a huge part of the governor's uh, task force briefing on, to the surprise of no one, the devastation financially continues all across the country, including Minnesota. When you go from a $1.5 billion surplus to a projected $2.4 billion deficit, and oh, by the way, we don't know where this might go. I mean, we might be headed to more success. We might be headed to more businesses opening up and thus creating more revenue, or we might be taking a step back. We've watched some of these projections uh, with, with more states opening up that are suggesting more fatalities. But we know these numbers have turned upside down. Scott, is this where we start to see more of the divide between the Democrats and the Republicans? We're seeing more of it. On the stay-at-home orders, we're seeing it from uh, leaders like Gazelka and Doubt and others, but on how this budget deficit is going to be resolved, whether it's uh, raising taxes, cutting taxes, cutting government, relying more on the federal government, I'm having a tough time believing this uniformity and these lines of agreement are going to stay at the level they have been so far. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we're going to see more and more of a, a political division. Not sure that that's completely unhealthy. Um, you know, in normal times, you sure. would obviously have a debate over spending or taxation and and uh, how much to use of the rainy day fund that fortunately Minnesota has. Uh, so I don't I don't know that that's all that unusual. But the the key will be going forward how much. Uh, does a revenue continue to, to decline or, uh, you know, does, do we, do we come back more rapidly than I, than I believe we, we will currently. And uh, how big does the problem become? How big does the uh, financial problem that the state faces become? But yes, I think we're going to see continuing debate uh, over the, overspending. And then the also, the other thing with spending is you can make an argument to some extent that some of that is needed to, stimulate uh, a rebound in the economy. Yeah, right. John, John, where do you think we're headed? For more red ink as this pandemic continues, everyone certainly hopes that it turns around. But the experience would suggest if we look at the 2008 financial crisis as just one example, that it unravels much quicker than it builds back up. And some of the natural tensions that have been subsumed during the crisis portion of this pandemic are starting to come to the surface. And we saw this, as Scott mentioned, with stay-at-home orders with Speaker uh, House Minority Leader Doubt uh, talking about trying to hold up the bonding bill regarding his Republican caucus if, indeed, the governor didn't begin to yield or cede some of the leadership that he constitutionally has for making some of these decisions that the state is, has been going through or that he and his administration have been facing at this point. So a lot of the political tension was is underlying, and it's coming to the forefront at this point. And I think that it's going to be very important that they figure out a way to continue to work together, because unfortunately, we're not going to 
be out of this crisis anytime soon. I want to get to the uh, controversies that come about. And Chris, why don't just to sit, be safe, put John and uh, Scott on hold so they both can hear this. This is uh, State Senator Justin Eichhorn. He represents District 5. And this was a tweet, which is a video that he offered up yesterday. And a lot of criticism and a lot of backlash has taken place since then. Instead of me giving a broad outline of what was said, let's just go ahead and play what uh, Senator Eichhorn had to say yesterday. Hey, State Senator Justin Eichhorn. We're working hard today again in St. Paul. And as you can see behind me today, we've got a nice little tent city set up here. Unfortunately, in greater Minnesota, Governor Walls has campgrounds shut down. Governor, this is an appeal to you. Please open up campgrounds in northern Minnesota. If you're okay with this, we should certainly be okay with our resorts in greater Minnesota, campgrounds being open. We can do it safely. Our campgrounds have a plan. They know how to do this. And by our nature in northern Minnesota, we're distanced. I'm so disappointed to see the Boundary Waters shut down for camping and all of our beautiful places we have to go up there. And it's also unfortunate this is, this is how our homeless people have to live right now. So, Governor, please open up camping in greater Minnesota. We can do it safely. We know how to do it safely. All of our Minnesota campgrounds are essential, and all of our Minnesota workers are essential. Open up Minnesota. Okay, that became a, a, a story for a while yesterday. The uh, state senator offered up a statement Tuesday evening saying it was his attempt to convince the governor to take heed of the dismal economic condition folks in my district and across Minnesota face in the Grand Rapids area. Uh, he added the video may have missed the mark, but Governor Wall's blanket extension of the stay-at-home order only exasperates the pain that my constituency feels. You know, at the end, I'll go to you first, John. He does say it is sad that this is how homeless have to feel. But I got to be honest, I thought it was completely tone deaf to talk about a very valid issue, by the way, a very important issue about what we're doing and where we're drawing lines on stay-at-home orders and the outdoors and what's allowed and what not, what is not allowed. But to make any sort of comparison in this way, uh, I know the state senator is young in his career, but I would have thought he would have been a little savvier instead of putting himself into this controversial position. What, what do you think? Uh, John, you go first, then Scott, just jump in right afterwards. Quite clearly, he realized that he had indeed, as he said, missed the mark Many people would go much further than that in terms of, you know, what he said and how he said it. He, in the original video, said nice little tent cities, and he's talking about people who are homeless in yeah. the most desperate situation imaginable during a pandemic. And the insensitivity is incredible, and the tone deafness is extraordinary. And yes, there are legitimate issues, and yes, that's why we send legislators to St. Paul to discuss and to discuss and to debate them, but not in such an inflammatory and sensitive way. So he indeed did, as he described, miss the mark. Scott, is this one where you think social media has taken it further than it should have? Or do you think the criticism, in your view, in this case, did meet the mark in the, in the broadest sense? Because obviously there's there's different types of criticism, but uh, it's been pretty unanimous against the state senator. Yeah, I, I, you know, social media took off with it, and, and it typically will with something like this. I think it ended up being a, about a two- or three-paragraph print story in the Star Tribune today. Um, that's probably about what it's worth uh, a day later. But I think 
if anything, you know, legislators should know that in the social media era, uh, you, you're going to you're going to make news with something like this. Maybe maybe he didn't mean to uh, be as insensitive as he came across. And as you said, Chad, he did put the disclaimer at the end that it's unfortunate the homeless have to live this way. But, you know, again, I, I agree that this is a really important issue. What do we do with northern Minnesota resorts, campgrounds, mm-hmm. BWCA yeah, camping, sure. and, you know, legitimate, and we should have a good discussion about it. But but equating camping in uh, a northern Minnesota or any Minnesota campground with being homeless is ridiculous. Well, uh, pause right there, come back with uh, the gentleman, and start with the uh, president's task force. Uh, it was out. It's back. The president has offered up the explanation why. Uh, where are we headed with this? Scott and John playing politics back in moments on CCO. Playing politics, Scott, uh, Scott Gillespie and John Rass, Star Tribune. Gents, let's go to uh, the task force and all this spun around for a little bit. The news started to break yesterday, about this time, that I think the New York Times said it first that the task force was going to come to an end. The vice president himself confirmed this and said it would probably wrap up its work around the end of May and shift management of the public health response back to federal agencies who work it was created to coordinate. Plenty of criticism across party lines. The president then in a tweet says, nope. That's not true. We're going to continue with the task force. And then I listened in at the top of the one o'clock hour and the president, John, was saying, I didn't realize how popular the task force is. And if it's that popular, I'm going to keep it going. What's your read on these 24 hours with this story? That it encapsulates the administration as a whole, and in particular, its response to the coronavirus crisis, in that the fact that he didn't know it was that popular suggests that he doesn't have his finger on the pulse of where Americans are, how anxious they are about this, how much they respect the medical community, in particular Dr. Fauci. And indeed, my sense is one of the reasons he wanted to wind it down is to try to obscure him from the public and the press. And it's well documented that they're also keeping him from testifying before Congress, which is nothing short of scandalous. The idea that he can go out there and do some media interviews, but isn't accountable to a co-equal branch of government simply because the Trump administration seemingly doesn't want him to be asked tough questions is not the way that our government is supposed to work in in any form or fashion. And then you have the aspect of all of this drama happens and the new White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, says, um, tweeted on Tuesday that um, reporting on the plan was, quote, being misconstrued. Well, how could anyone misconstrue that when all the signals were there and it was the president himself who said that he was caught misunderstanding just how popular this panel was and and uh, the importance of it to the american people so that again tries to throw shade on the press when what they're simply doing is chronicling the dysfunction happening at the white house so a big miss all around but reflective of so much that's been happening uh, regarding 
their response to the pandemic. Well, and, and Scott, when people saw this and juxtaposed this with these numbers coming out in the previous 24 hours from the CDC, which talked about maybe 3,000 people a die, Dane, a, a, a die, a day dying, excuse me, starting uh, June 1st, and then the, the University of Washington model suggesting by August 140,000 people. The public and the media wasn't saying, wow, we're going to miss this because it's popular. The public and the media are saying, why are you doing this when the pandemic could be at its peak at this point? But again, it just tells you how the president has thought throughout his whole life. Eyeballs, numbers, ratings, and wait, it gets great ratings, maybe the best ratings ever in cable history. And wait, you need me to be on because it's popular? Sure, I'll keep doing it. Right. Well, we we have a public health crisis in the country. We have a federal response that has been lacking for the entire time we've been dealing with the virus. It continues to be lacking. There's uh, a lack of a strategy nationally, so it's been left up to the states. Some of them doing, and, and many of them doing different approaches. To some extent, that makes some sense. But the bigger overall goals and the search for uh, personal protective equipment, the search for testing materials, you know, that that's had to be somewhat coordinated at the federal level and it hasn't been done well, and we're not done with it yet. We're still looking for, for it. And so... Uh, you know, I on one hand, you want to see the task force and don't go away because it's been so ineffective. And you wonder maybe if the agencies were given the authority they they had previously, things would be better. But on the other hand, you you're left thinking, why don't we have a better national strategy and response? John, I'm going to give you the final word here on Justice Ginsburg. Once again, having a health concern, although because of COVID-19, they are operating right now by phone, and she was part of it today. But she is 87. Because of the multiple health concerns, there are a lot of Democrats who worry about this. We have this debate come up an awful lot, John, with about a minute or so to go. How big do you think the Supreme Court will be in this election compared to how big it normally is in, in, in other presidential elections? Always consequential. Nothing will supersede President Trump's response to the coronavirus and the resulting economic calamity that the country's undergoing at this point. But it is one of the justifications for many Republicans who normally wouldn't like the way that the president has handled his job. But the importance of the Supreme Court and other courts, as we see through Majority Leader McConnell, is a key justification for many Republican voters. And it can be equally galvanizing for Democratic voters as well. John and Scott, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you. you can always check out uh, Playing Politics at the uh, Star Tribune website. So let's say you're just tuning in. you got a couple options. StarTribune.com. It'll be posted rather soon. Or what we tell you all the time, uh, Radio.com. It's a free app. Costs you nothing, obviously. If you want to listen to all stations, you want to listen to just WCCO, you can. In fact, when you get it, hit the rewind feature for 24 hours. Any segment on our show, on Corey's show, uh, Dave's show, you name it, you can go back and find it. So, again, radio.com.